Well, hello there. Welcome to the Jazz Podcast. Today we're chatting to Mike Soper, one of the very most lovely gentlemen on the London jazz scene. Mike and I have worked together as side people on quite a few projects over the years, and I can tell you right now there's not a nicer person around. He deserves every bit of the success he's now getting from this fantastic debut album. Welcome to the Jazz Podcast. I am your host, Rob Cope, and I'm joined by Mike Soper. How are you doing, Mike? Good. Very well, thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> so happy to have you. I know a lot of our listeners will be super excited when they see that this show is um, is yours because um, you're a much beloved member. I don't think that does you justice, really, but... Everybody, I don't know. I'll take that. That's pretty. That's pretty decent. You are Thanks. a cherished member. That's what cherished. I'll say. Cherished. Welcome to episode number one hundred and sixty-six of the Jazz Podcast. We just had a listen to Mike's new album. That was um, that was the track, "The Canopy," from Undoing, which is now out. Out now. That's what they say. Yes. Isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so. Mike, let's have a little talk about the music. Tell our lovely listeners who you are. Uh, yeah, so I've been I uh, I first came to London in two thousand and nine to start my studies at Trinity uh, College of Music, um, and very much enjoyed my time there. A huge part because of the people that I was surrounded by on the course, as well as the amazing teachers that we had access to. So. Um, so I was um, blessed to have musicians such as Laura Jurd, Elliot Galvin, Leo Richardson in my year, and uh, Corey Dick was the year below me, and Connor Chaplin. So there was like it was a whole colleges, and Mark Kavuma was a couple of years below us, and Reuben Fox and that crowd. So it was a really, really amazing, fruitful time to be at, at uni. Um, and um, one of my my trumpet teacher um, was Chris Batchelor. Steve Autumn took me for a bit and then I had Chris Batchelor. So I had a real sort of amazingly, beautifully mixed experience of um, college life. And then I graduated 2013 and I've been sort of, I've actually got in my last year, I got really into the the whole trad thing. There was this massive swing, swing dancing uh, thing happening, this phenomenon. And I basically um, got into that in like my last year and I was, I was, jobbing basically for the last sort of four years just doing trad gigs um not really spending too much time thinking although I'd done a lot of I'd done some 
you know, I'd half started some projects back in in uni and stuff, but sort of giving myself some time to decompress from college, I think, and to sort of deinstitutionalize myself. And um, I probably didn't think about that as my motive at the time, but yeah, definitely needed it. It's really interesting you say that because I was advised by one of my, should we call them professors? He was like, you should just go away for a while. You've been in yeah. college for a long time. Just get out there, try and like let it go. You know, it's, yeah. it can take yeah. a while. Yeah, yeah. And it was, and it's a funny one as well, because the trad thing, it's like a lot, because I mean, really is, it's a modern jazz. It, I don't know what, what it's like now, but when I was there, it was definitely a modern, well, I mean, by modern, I mean, sort of like, you know, 50s onwards. We never did trad. I never studied any. No. Oh, maybe one day, one day once or something. Exactly. Right. And we had a history class, which was um, led by the amazing Malcolm L. Smith for like first and second year. But then that was kind of it. And it was kind of done as a it was like an added bonus thing. It wasn't something we really had to study in order to um, in order to. It, it, it's more of the way it was seen sort of socially. It was a bit of like, a, well, yeah, OK, some people do that. Fine. Whatever. So it really did feel like coming away from the contemporary jazz scene and like completely I mean to be honest I was actually sort of I've ended up feeling like I've been under a rock for the last few years but you know you can you can frame that as a bad thing or a good thing can't you it's kind of your choice (laughs) so I choose to frame it as a good thing (laughs) yeah I love that why exactly do you feel like you've been under a rock well I think that um okay so to go to, I mean, I don't know how deep we should go here in terms of like emotional, emotional, emotional stuff. As, as deep as you choose. But like, essentially, I think that, um, I think that being, coming to London, I'm not from London originally, I'm from Reading. And I definitely suffered from what everyone gets, I think, which is small fish, big pond syndrome when I came. And I think that, um, I don't know, I spent a lot of times sort of like, after I but certainly after I graduated it's, it's intimidating being surrounded by such incredible people and that's not just the college I was at obviously there were some ridiculous musicians all around me uh, uh all of the colleges at the time you know I mean you know you've got you've got Miguel Garodi who was the year above me at Guildhall oh man yeah uh, there was Ruben Fowler at Academy who was two years above me I mean these guys are, these these were terrifying guys for somebody who wasn't used to like being do you know what I mean like yeah it, it, I mean these are some terrifying characters I mean, maybe it's just because that's the time we studied, but I think of it as a bit of a golden age of stu- amongst students because a lot of the people I studied with are, are d- still on the scene, still doing really well, right. you know. You yeah. know, I do think yeah. we were in a, amongst a strong class of 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 people, you know. Like, exactly. for me, exactly. it's like yeah. I was at Academy just worrying about what I was doing and uh, yeah. playing with some lovely... Like amazing piano players like the first pianist I encountered from Trinity College when I got to London was Elliot Galvin and it's like oh that's the you know what I mean it's like yeah, yeah it was an it was an amazing experience to realize that everyone was better than me <laughs> yeah yeah and I think that basically I think that it, it I mean it took me a long time to realize that that's a good thing rather than a bad thing. I mean, when I say a long yes. time, I'm talking 10 years, like mm-hmm. essentially to realize mm-hmm. that that's a good thing that, you know, what is that? Yes, there's that old sort of um, platitude that it's like, if you're, if you're the smartest one in the room, you're in the wrong room kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And like, it's taken me such a long time to basically just get over that. And so I think when I say living under a rock, I think I genuinely probably avoided the jazz scene a bit just because it was too much and so I just went I went and did I mean there is not that there aren't some incredible musicians on the trad scene but it was just away from that whole college life it was just a very different thing you know yeah 
Um, and so when I say living under a rock, I, I sort of mean like, yeah, it's taken me a long time to circle back. It's, you know, you get out of college and then you do all the work on yourself, don't you? And then, yeah. and then you come back to stuff later on with a fresh mindset. I mean, I've met some other people who've had a really similar experience. I speak to them now and their confidence is just like blossomed hugely. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's me as a musician in a nutshell, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's, it rings very true to me because when I was at, I was at um, college with some amazing saxophone players uh, like James Bateman, Josh Arcaleo, and, you know, these, these Joe Wright, these guys were insane. Nadine Tamori, who was like, could make sax do anything. And I always tried to say to myself, it's better value for money when you're at the bottom of this and you can pick their brains (laughs) and be like, how are you doing that? And I'm like, well, it's harder for them in a way when, when you're at the top, who do you bother? Who do you, nag yeah. for ideas yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly hard, though. maybe we're, hopefully we're inadvertently stroking a few egos on the show that would be nice wouldn't it it would be but also yeah. you're right it's it's i think it's a bit like the like it's easy on a podcast to just be like hey mike's got an album isn't this lovely and we talk about it but i think the real value in the show is actually to explore the journey that took you there and the adversity you went through, because it's really inspiring for other people and other musicians to see that it's not just as simple as it looks when you go on social media that, that, and I think when we share our insecurities, the most common reaction I experience is other people going, Oh, me too, man. I feel like that. And yeah, yeah. And it's a very positive thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a whole other kind of worms there, isn't there, about like mental health. And I mean, you could go on. Yeah, you go right down that bottom part. But let's not. (laughs) No, no, let's not. But but having said that, just just like being able to talk to you openly about how how it is to study. um, And obviously that we're so lucky to have done it, but that doesn't make it easy. And and yeah, so it's it's really interesting for me as well, because every week I do this, I like come away feeling like 10 times better after the interview yeah. for that's a great thing yeah whatever we talked about it's like being in, in like a therapy session yeah um so how <laughs> did you cry crying over their collective like terror <laughs> yes absolutely um so how did you know now was the time to come back and 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 release your fantastic debut album I mean, I don't think it was, I I didn't consider this as being, oh, this is the right moment necessarily. I think that, I mean, actually having, having Elliot as a, because Elliot, who's on keys on the album and electronics, mm-hmm. who obviously just, I mean, he makes it sparkle. It's incredible. But um, um, he's, he's a really, really good friend. And actually in part, it was having him giving me kick, multiple kicks up the arse over the years and kind of saying, oh, you know, when are you going to do your thing? When are you going to, and just like, and eventually, I mean, I don't know what the catalyst was. We start. I had. A, I decided to just get some tunes and have a play with the the the, the three guys that are on the album, um, just a casual play, just to try some bits and pieces out. Just before we went into the first lockdown, um, and I was like, "Oh, that's great." And then, and then Elliot was like, "Oh, like he happened to have like a gig. There's that place, ninety one living room." on Brick Lane and he was like oh I've just been offered a gig but I was thinking you could do something and we did one gig in January of that year and then that was it um and I think that you know I mean it's probably like you've probably heard this very uh, very commonly recently on the podcast it's like you come back from something like lockdown with a bit more 
a bit more hunger to just play don't you mm. and so um but i mean yeah so yeah it it wasn't so much there was a moment but i definitely um had uh, just because of the circumstances global circumstances of the last couple of years i'd lost a little bit of that sort of wanting i didn't want to sort of wait for I, I, and also there comes a point like I'm 32 now and it's a bit like well if I'm not if I'm if I'm not going to do it now when exactly am I going to start doing it you know it, it's it, it just came to like I know I want to do it one day and it was time to stop saying one day I think that was all it was I just got sick yeah. of waiting yeah. yeah yeah and the tension just builds and builds and you're just like oh my god when are you? and you, you turn it into this whole thing yeah. And actually now having done it on the other side of that, I'm just like, oh, this is fine. And and it's annoying and long, actually. If if anything, like the, the admin of it is is a I don't know if well, it's it's a slog. And um and uh and but it's more that than anything. And it's like I don't to a certain extent now it's out. It's a bit like, well, people can do what they want with it in a way now. And and it's it's a massive relief because it's set a precedent for how I want to move forward, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a lot of pressure at the moment because so many people are doing their albums like in the fourth year yeah. you know it's like not even out yeah. of college yet that kind of thing was like i always looked at the several generations before us like my favorite sax player mike brecker i think he was 37 yeah. for his first album are you serious you know? yeah he's definitely late 30s 37 39 and i always thought there's no rush if mike's can wait you know? Yeah, yeah. Good <laughs> enough no, for him. It's good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah. but it was always a conscious thought for me to kind of push back against the the worry that oh, it should be now. Should I be? Should I be already recording? Um, versus waiting until you've got something fully formed enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. To release. I think maybe I slightly had the realization that um, I was I was telling myself I was waiting for it. To for it to be fully formed but it it was a way of like like you know there's a certain amount of creative risk you take when you take some music to a band and you're like you have to get over that probably not if you've been doing it for ages but when you're first taking stuff you're like well is anyone going to like it are they going to what are they going to think are they going to not want to do it and and then like if i put an album out is anyone going to is everyone going to hate me and blah, blah blah but like um I realized that I was rather than waiting for the right time, I was just avoiding I was being too risk averse. It was not helping me. And I think mm-hmm. that was yeah that was a big was a big thing yeah so there's a review on london jazz news by mm. peter slavid which says at the end of, of a lovely review of the album that this may be sopa's debut album but the band has been playing together for quite a while and it has that mature settled feel to it and i totally when i read it i was like yeah that's the the feeling of musicians who know each other so well and listening to you and elliot play together um yeah <laughs> you know it's like it doesn't feel like something that's like fresh out of college you know it's got a it's got a whole other yeah. feel to it um so was it Thanks. easy we haven't we haven't mentioned tom mccready yet or um or jay davis your bassist your drummer tell us about how you came to 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 decide these were the guys to bring your vision to life uh so tom tom i mean i did i well i'd may I didn't have much of a vision, but we'll get into that. Um, but like, um, but uh, so Tom, I met through 
uh, Elliot because he's an Elliot's trio. And so, and I'm, oh, I can't have met him through earlier. I must have met him way before. I must have met him yonks ago for the first time. It's like that, that thing, isn't it? Where you meet someone in passing ages ago. But, uh, but he certainly, I played with him for the first time because Elliot was like, oh, try Tom because he's great. And normally he plays, um, I think he plays predominantly upright. I think that's true. I'm going to sure. go with yes. That was yeah. the case last time I was. Right. Yeah. And, and, but on this one, he's, he's on electric, but he's just got, he's got such a broad conception of what it is to be a bass player and to be a musician that it was just so, it, it felt completely right because I, I wanted to, I wanted to have people who like had, cause he has, he has so much together on mm. the bass. But he also has that real lovely ability to just be very throwaway and just to not do that and just to be like, oh, I'm just going to play, I'm going to play something that just feels, sounds right. And he's he's into his like, there was a moment when they, one of them, when we were recording, they were like, oh, that sounds like this um, muse thing or this or something like that. And then they have that. I mean, they all have that, but but I mean, Tom, I was thinking like he has that ability. He'll, he'll play a bass line. It does not, doesn't necessarily sound like a jazz player playing a bass line, but he has that that level of depth as a as a technician as well. And as a he has he's he's the whole he's the whole package. And then Jay, um, again, I think it, it was it through Ellie. It would have been through Ellie. But I, I met him once when I I used to do it. I almost like I sort of started a trio yonks ago. It was like with and uh and that was originally there was an amazing player on it called George Bird and then after that we didn't do much and I, I had and then a while later I had I, I was like oh maybe I'll resurrect that and Elliot was like get Jay and then and then I so I was I mean you know Elliot's basically the gatekeeper to everyone I know that's essentially how it works yeah well he's, <laughs> he's the only one I know for initially but he tells me about everyone else but yeah. um but yeah, like, and then, and then Jay's just, I mean, he's just amazing. He can do anything again. Like he's somebody who's got so much, but he's, he's thinking about uh, music and he's, he's, he's uh, on the, uh, as a broader conception of, of, of music rather than just, and not even that just sound. I mean, he's in, he's in an amazing project now with Elliot called police police, which is um, that's with uh, euphonium and, who else oh and it's with a it's with a performance artist george finley ramsey and that's mental and they do crazy crazy stuff on that and jay jay will just go anywhere he feels that he can go and actually to be honest like it was when we were rehearsing the music i was it they were there was a moment when i kind of said to them look guys like i've written these charts i have some kind of a vibe in mind but like but if you feel something that the like that isn't what I've written or is completely different and but also if you feel something that you think might be a bit too pastiche and a bit corny I'd rather you do it and it feels right and we lean into that and make it sort of tongue-in-cheek and make that whole like make it fun do you know what I mean because yeah. um yeah because I don't know it's cool isn't it to do stuff that's fun that's it <laughs> fun is good people you like I mean? when it's fun yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool to just be like, oh, yeah, this is kind of corny. Let's just enjoy yeah. how corny it is. Yeah, I don't like to take anything too seriously. And actually, mm. Elliot plays on my album and in my band. And, and like, there's yeah, a bit yeah. of one of my pieces where, like, he, like, plays the national anthem as grandly as possible. And it's just so <laughs> it's just so silly and ridiculous. And yeah. I love that. And I'm always like, well, people have paid to come see you. You've got to give them something. Throw well, them there's bow. that. Yeah, yeah, there's that. And also, like, it's this idea that if it's funny, it's not music or something. It's like, you're not, I don't know, there's this weird pressure to take yeah. yourself really to, and it's like, 
it's really and I remember actually Laura um Judd she's yeah Judd sorry she's always had the attitude of like you know just because it's it what does he what does she say she talks about serious fun the seriousness that underlies fun and I do you know I've drawn I feel like I'm starting to draw this comparison between like there's this whole legacy in in the UK of like absurdist comedy and like underneath a lot of like really absurdist comedy like what what can I think of like it's not that absurd Mr Bean's not like absurd absurd but you talk about Mr Bean like as a really good example of like British comedy that's been taken global and there's this like underlying I mean it's desperately sad it's tragic The Office is another one there's a really amazing interview which I listened to with Russell Brand interviewing Ricky Gervais about The Office and basically like you're watching David Brent like it's like the saddest thing you've ever seen, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's also the funniest thing you've ever seen. So there's a real like seriousness as well as there being this incredible levity. And and the idea that those two should be separate, I, I think is a bit short sighted. I like, I like, I like the idea that you can have both and that one might deepen the other, you know, mm-hmm. and that as well, that, tra- that tragedy deepens comedy as well. It makes it funnier. Yeah. I kind completely of agree. Yeah, I think, yeah. Tom McCready is the perfect choice for that kind of thing because he's always a guy who will take a risk with a smile on his face. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, so and true. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Yeah. He kind of, yeah, yeah. That's so true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's how I think of him in a one sentence. And the thing about Jay, well, we're here, your drummer is, yeah. I mean, not that you own him, the drummer who's on your uh, the drummer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he and I had a few plays years ago and we always played like really free and, really like open. And I always sort of thought that's the kind of drummer he was. And then I heard him once playing in a different band and it was like all groove. And I was like, what? What is happening? How is this so good? Such a versatile dude. He has an amazing multiplicity. And he also has this thing, the thing that that we were, because we were talking a lot about, um, obviously, as you do, we were talking a lot about like time, feel and groove and stuff and like how it should sit. And, um, and I was sort of saying there are moments like I was like, well, there are moments when I want it to be like loose and almost like a punk, like not, not quite punk maybe, but I want it to be loose to the point where it almost sounds like you're not, you're not making it. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and he's up for it. He's, he doesn't, he's, his ego is not like, no, I'm going to just be perfect. And he's, but he can do that. And then, but he can be so in as well. I mean, mm. it's just it's amazing flexibility and I mean Tom as well so there are these moments when it just can I don't know to like what we were aiming for at least was where it's like well I want it to feel like it's kind of only just hanging together sometimes and that that space that you get between like because then you know when you've got people that aren't making the hits at exactly the same time or they're not playing the groove in exactly the same way there's it that create it creates this amazing um there's the, all of this air that's then around the groove that's in the spaces in between where everyone's playing and it just then it to me it then feels a bit more like exploded in a nice way like I totally and, that's, agree. and that's you can be doing that on on a vamp and it can have all this space that it didn't have previously I mean, I was, I was thinking that about like sort of some of the, I don't know whether what I'm saying is like re- either really obvious or really contentious. I'm not sure, but like, but, but in like Miles' 60s stuff and like the slightly later stuff, like Miles Smiles and, and there's this, the Tony Williams in particular, I mean, he's, he's, his ability to not just be really in, but to, to purposefully not be really in and just, and it, all, there's all of this extra space suddenly in the, in the, in the texture that's just like, it really is lovely. It feels like it's yeah. breathing, you know? Yeah. 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 I had this revelation at college with Liam Noble. He was like instructing right, right. an ensemble we were playing 
and he stopped us in in a tune and and was like and i'd never thought of it like this before he said none of you should be doing what somebody else is doing and like <laughs> don't imitate if you hear something over there don't jump on board and be like well hey we're doing this thing you know yeah. he's like because that's being done now you've got to always do something that you can't here or isn't yeah. happening but i remember thinking it thinking oh, like until that point in my life i'd always thought there was something quite trendy about like imitating what another person on stage was doing but that was a great like line in the sand but not do that <laughs> no <laughs> yeah that's bad jazz <laughs> exactly like getting bopped on the nose with a newspaper uh, yeah, yeah stop it yeah 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 well it's so tempting isn't it as well because you're so used to like you transcribe and stuff so you're so used to like cop cop you default to copy don't you yeah yeah that's such a good point yeah and so let's talk can we can we talk about laura judd as your producer how she fits in and what she contributes how does this work how did you decide to have laura early on uh, um let as me a producer no i don't think so i think it was sort of like Actually, yeah, maybe. Hold on, let me think. I think I decided to do the album, then maybe, yeah. I mean, really, I think I officially asked her. Yeah, that's right. I'd been chatting to her about it. No, I'd, I'd sort of been chatting to other people about it for like two months or something. And then I, I spoke to Laura relatively soon before we went. But I think, she, I don't know, I think maybe I'd chat to Elliot and he'd sort of mention, because obviously they're married. Um, and he had, a, I think he may have said, so I'll just, just so you know, Mike's thinking. So I think she maybe had it sort of in her back of her mind that I was going to ask her but it was really just to, it wasn't it's an interesting one because she's obviously an incredible trumpet player and you know is one of my trumpet heroes but um but also so it was really cool to have somebody in the room who's got such incredible composition chops and has got such an amazing again we're talking about oversight bigger picture music but she's also it, she's also got so much studio experience recording her own music as a trumpet player, which is a whole different thing because you're dealing with stamina and you're dealing with like, you know, what order do you do the, the tunes in? Not just for the vibe, but in order for your ch to chops to be able to sustain a couple of days of hitting it quite hard in the studio. Which, which thanks to having her behind uh, on the other side of the glass, like I was able to sort of feel like I was pretty fresh for each tune, which was really nice. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, so how I made the decision was, was I mean, it, when I thought about it, it was kind of obvious. Plus, she's one of my best mates. I mean, it's it's kind of the perfect storm <laughs> in yeah. a way or whatever the good version of that would be. Stars align. But um, yeah, but it was it, yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, having her there and just and just being like she's the thing that was amazing was she was really good. At, and again, this is this is helped partly by the fact that I've known her for so long. We lived together. I mean, the three of us lived together with a with a classical pianist friend of ours at college. So we've known each other for a long time. So she had that freedom where she could say to me, oh, I, do you think maybe that's enough? I think you I think it's in there. But also she was able to be like, I think you've got a better solo in you than that. And like and kind of like being having known her for so long it was she was somebody who it didn't flare my ego up too much to hear her say it because it's 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 almost like oh yeah cool I mean aside from the fact that I respect her opinion so much as a musician it's also there's that kind of kinship of like well she yeah her basically being like no 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 try again <laughs> yeah and then being able to try again and and yeah and sometimes like trying again and trying not to sound so good and and you know again she's got the the breadth of well you know yeah 
stop showing yeah. off and just try and play some music <laughs> it's wonderful the first time yeah, i ever yeah. like did a recording which you'd have been on as well with with laura probably it was the chaos orchestra and, right yeah and well, she'd asked yeah, yeah. she'd asked mark lockhart to be the producer so you'd come out of a take and you just see them there chatting away and he would give very honest advice but it's wonderful yeah. to think how the time time has moved on and now it's laura's the one dishing it out you know it, it, yeah 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 it's true and it's yeah she's just so i mean and also she's just a calming influence because she's so experienced i'd come out and she'd be like cool cool and everything was cool everything was fine the whole time and it was yeah she's like unshakable in a way you know it was yeah. really really nice she was super reassuring oh fantastic yeah how do you go about these all seven tracks on this album uh, original compositions how long did it take to write the album um probably about all together i reckon it took um, would have taken about six months i think i think that i but i didn't do it solidly for six months i did it sort of i think i did i think i did four or five of them relatively spaced out and then i and then i maybe didn't do it that much and then i crammed in the last two or three to make an album or something like that i, I can't really remember it's hard to hard to cast your mind back because yeah, now it it's is, like seven computers and they all just tie together in my head but it was really not that consistent <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah writing i didn't yeah i think that and, and also like trying to unpick the, the process of writing it as well is um i think in the end i sort of defaulted to that thing of writing melodies and then trying to write stuff that went with melodies but the thing the thing that i get stuck on with composing is that i get stuck on a vamp so i can do one thing that goes round and round and round so then um and so trying to write and then think of new sections and move things on that was the big challenge i think there and and um trying to write melodies uh, i don't know the whole yeah I'm trying to think if there's anything interesting we'd say about the process that wouldn't be just what everyone does do you record um, yourself playing and this i do actually do you know i record myself practicing separately i now record myself practicing i'm doing i'm working it's really funny it's like hit me off in this other direction doing that album i'm now like right i just want to do really straight ahead so i'm i'm recording myself transcribing and recording myself practicing and stuff to, to, just to see because i want to get a sound together doing that stuff mm -hmm. um so i record myself now more way more than i did then um i feel like listening back to it i was like it was like it was almost like okay now i've got a list of things that i want to that i want to work on don't know why i didn't have that already but i think that yeah um but i don't i know there are some people i know steve coleman he transcribes himself and then he he, he, he improvises records himself and then he transcribes and then and then turns it into compositions I, I think he's got a multiplicity of ways that he does it but i know that's one of the ways he does that's things. my favorite way to work i can is that how you do it yeah. yeah interesting yeah i mean i'd love to try that i think it's great i just Actually, think i'm better in that in that moment than i am if i um, sit down and try to sort of think about it i'm obviously not much of a thinker <laughs> well, i don't know thinking can sort of kill things can't it in a way sometimes yeah so but yeah and that is actually another thing mark lockhart said to me that he did and and i hadn't yeah. really tried it before and and i was like all oh, right if it's good enough for him i'll give it a go and yeah. it just felt like a good way to like get the ball rolling at least you know yeah 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 okay well i'm gonna try that 
I'm going to try that after this. <laughs> See what comes up. Like every time I do a standard yeah, yeah. gig, I'll do that just to put a tune together, just to have something that I've like done as a basically an exercise, you know? Yeah. But it's fun to keep, I think with composing, you have to just keep doing it, you know? Otherwise, it's just like anything. It's just like yeah. tons to dust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not in the habit of it at the moment, but then I'm working really hard on like improvisation. I'm being quite methodical about improvisation stuff mm-hmm. at the moment. So it's related, but then I think, yeah, I want to, I want to, I, I do want to get writing again. I want to move on relatively quickly to the next thing. Yeah. So, so that just, I want to get, I, I want to get some consistency. I want to have a bit of a, I don't know what you, whether you'd call it a por- portfolio or something. I want to have yeah. like a bit of body of, of stuff together over the next five, 10 years, you know, it'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah but not necessarily all with the same group, but I, yeah. Yeah. We, we look back to my Mike Brecker model of, um, yeah. of albums. He's done, he's done, and I don't know how many it was, maybe 12 or 15 as a soloist with his name on the front, different bands and ideas. But when you look back now, it's an amazing body of work, but yeah. you know, it's, it's like, it was quite, yeah, quite sort of deliberate each time he released a solo album it was always a different thing and a new idea and a new project you know right yeah yeah so tell us yeah. then what is coming up next what kind of stuff have you got in mind what would you like to be doing i don't know i'm thinking a lot about uh so i'm listening to a load of really old like i'm listening to a few things i'm listening to like loads of um like charlie parker i've been checking out this album recently live at saint nick's which is a Charlie Parker live album and it's got, uh, and and it's just like, it's absolutely insane. So I've been listening to that. I would quite like to do something with s- some material from that, whether that's, whether that's I take some moments from the improvisations and I do something that's based off that. I don't necessarily want it to be in that style. Um, although I think that that's really where I'm at at the moment. I just, um, I love the, the pace I love the excitement and the electricity of that, of that music. And I think that I would like it to be slightly more acoustic feeling. I feel like the first thing I've done has been ended up being quite, I don't know if I don't have much to compare it to, but it feels like it's been quite produced. There was a lot done. There was a lot done in post. Like Elliot and I had a session way after um, for him to lay down the electronics separately. And there were a few overdubs and moments and stuff in the studio. And um, it's just to layer up some things, layer up some percussion moments or layer up some electronics. And I think I'd like the next thing to be uh, like an ensemble, a small ensemble, which is which is much more acoustic, but then which is doing something uh, with some material that's from the sort of, I don't know, whether, I don't know, the tradition, whatever you'd call it, of jazz, uh, or from the, you know, from some, from some really great recordings, uh, but then maybe trying to do something that's not like a jazz, a jazzy jazz, type thing i mean um so i had a lesson do you know that you know peter evans trumpet player mm-hmm. um i had a lesson with him which was obviously blew my whole world open about a year and a, about a year and a half ago right and he was talking about how um he'd taken he'd taken a bit from a charlie parker there's that there's that uh there's that rec- really famous recording of coco that charlie parker thing yeah and there's this amazing dialogue between max roach and parker um rhythmic dialogue between them and he'd done this thing where he'd extrapolated out the hits and turned the and, t- and based a whole piece of music off just the rhythmic hits that they did but you know the kind of stuff he does i mean it would not have sounded like the original source material yeah. but he was talking about treating everything as just information that it's just information and then you take the information you trust the information because you love it you love that sound that pattern 
So you kind of trust that and you're like, okay, so I'm going to take that pattern and I'm going to then build something out of that pattern. So he talked about that. And so I love the idea of taking something and then really abstracting it, but so that it still has the same, you still, you know, it has, you still like it for the same reason. And then you, you do other stuff with it. I mean, yeah. if you listen to his, um, his project being in becoming, have you listened to that? It's no, called, I like, it's um i don't know how to pronounce the basis names nick jockfiat i think i don't know how to pronounce it and it's uh savannah harris on drums joel ross on on vibes and um and it's kind of like a jazz quartet but it's just like it's so out and he's doing loads of i i don't know whether it's always you know people bandy the word atonal around very loosely don't they but it sounds like there's some atonal stuff in there yeah um and it's all very but but then it's like it's a jazz it's a jazz thing at the same time so i love the idea of taking something and then being like bang so part of me is like okay so i'd like to do maybe a maybe an acoustic quartet or an or a trio but then i had the idea um there's a cellist who i've heard um at various free improv gigs called hannah marshall who's uh, unbelievable funnily enough she teaches in one of the same schools as me actually oh, wow. cool. and i've met her like I've, I've seen her a couple of times at the school concerts just be like hey that she obviously has no clue who i am but like she's like i've seen her play a couple of times and i'm just like blown away so i'm thinking about maybe i could write something with it depends with someone like a cello she's and certainly inspired me to consider the cello wow, yeah. as sort of like i don't know i'm interested in in doing something like that maybe with maybe with a guitarist i don't know maybe a trio but so taking some source material inspired by some old jazz and then like doing something in a new setting with it but without just playing parker tunes you know yeah that's yeah. incredible. What an idea. Yeah. You never know, do you? But like, we're going to have a listen to Red Shark. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the Jazz Podcast. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. All right. Here it is Red Shark from Mike's debut album, Undoing. <laughs> 